new Panama Canal is finally open for business. Will it deliver the big changes in North American shipping patterns that were promised when the project was announced? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. year and a half late and roughly $150 million over budget, the widening of the Panama Canal is finally complete. And assuming that the canal performs as intended and welcomes much bigger ships through its locks, it could lead to major changes in the way that containerized cargo is shipped to and from the United States. West Coast ports in particular are in a position to lose large volumes of business to their East and Gulf Coast counterparts if shippers decide to bring their Asian imports all the way through the canal. But there are multiple factors to be considered, including water depth and berth length of the ports, links to inland transportation, the value of the cargo in question, and its degree of urgency. Helping us to sort through the issues and speculate on the wider canal's impact is David Egan, Head of Industrial and Logistics Research in the Americas for CBRE. He'll give his views on the short and long-term impacts of the canal, which ports stand to benefit the most, and which ones could be losers. Turns out the answers aren't as clear as you might think. So here is my conversation with David Egan. David Egan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We'll be talking about the impact of the widened Panama Canal, the addition of a new set of locks on the canal, and the impact that that's going to have on ports, ships, shippers, and the like. What is your general sense of what the major impacts are going to be from a wider canal able to take ships, as I understand it, of up to 18,000 20-foot uh, 20 equivalent units or 9,000 40-foot containers just give me an overall feeling about wh- how you think this is going to go. Well, it's, it's worth looking at it from perhaps a short, mid, and long-term point of view. In the short term, the most immediate impact, there will be some East Coast ports in the United States that are going to see some additional larger ships that should land that wouldn't have otherwise because of this canal. But we really think in the short term that there won't be a significant impact on the East Coast because there's been a, for lack of a better term, a lot of the, the impact that we thought was going to happen already did happen. If you may remember, at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015, there were some labor and management disputes on the West Coast, which caused a significant backlog, and quite a few container ships were stuck offshore for weeks at a time, which really disrupted supply chains in the United States. So many of these users who were accustomed to sending goods from Asia to the West Coast of the U.S. and then either railing or trucking across the country found that that was not a a viable long-term solution for some of their cargo. They wanted to mitigate the risk, and so they started to shift that cargo to the east, uh, sending it to places like Savannah, Norfolk, Charleston, New York, and um, bypassing the West Coast entirely. So we think when this whole project started in 2007, there was an expectation that there would be a massive impact, that a lot of cargo would stop going to the West Coast and start going through the canal and land on the East Coast. And what we found is that actually did happen. 
but the rate at which it happened it happened much sooner than we had expected. And the reason it happened was a little bit different than just simply the, the wider lock. So in the short term, there will be an impact. But I would suggest that the East Coast has already captured a lot of that market share that they were expecting to capture. It happened earlier than they'd expected. I think the interesting thing to look at, too, is from the midterm and the long term, how supply chains will begin to reconfigure now that the East Coast becomes an option for these larger ships. If you look at the, the geography of the United States, the West Coast of the U.S. is really far from where a significant hub of the U.S. population lives. You know, most of the population lives east of the Mississippi River. And so in a perfect world, you'd want to get your cargo to land as close to that endpoint as you possibly could. But most supply chains are set up so that cargo will come in through the West Coast, will get on a rail, will rail across the country, will end up on trucks, and finally make its way to a distribution center somewhere in the middle, middle or the eastern part of the country. And these supply chains are, are networks that have been set up over a significant period of time, have a huge amount of capital investment. Many of them are tied up in long-term leases. So it's really difficult to change those supply chains on a dime. But with the canal opening up and the shipping times from Asia getting much shorter, from Asia to the East Coast, that is, getting much shorter, I think what's going to happen in the mid to long term is supply chain users, as they begin to rationalize their supply chains, think about new locations, you know, if they're up for a new building or a new lease, some of their focus may shift a bit to the east because they can now ship via air waterways from Asia to the east coast and get it there in an efficient manner, in a quick manner. And that might be the long-term impact is that we start to see supply chains, which are now largely centralized around the western to midwestern part of the U.S., become more centralized around the midwestern to eastern part of the U.S. because of the canal. Well, let me ask you this. You said a lot of that, uh, at least some of that cargo has already bypass the west coast how did it bypass the west coast did it go on smaller ships through the existing canal or did it go the other way and come through the suez uh, both i would say it was really a function of a problem an unforeseen problem that needed to be solved immediately and so it was both that it was go through the canal on a smaller ship go to the suez canal there's actually some some portion of cargo that is coming in via air now rather than through ships and so air cargo is a very expensive very very expensive way to bring cargo in if some of those users who chose to use air rather than sea, they may go back to sea because now they can they can continue to land on the East Coast but do so two or three weeks uh, shorter than they would have otherwise or you know, choose a different method. You know, it really was an issue of fixing an immediate problem and fixing it quickly. And then once the solution was implemented and was found to be acceptable, a lot of these shippers decided to stick with it. And so now with the, the larger ships and the faster route, I don't see much of a situation or much likelihood that they're going to go backwards and go back to the way it used to be. They'll probably avail themselves of the wider canal and continue to use the East Coast. What do you think will be the cost differential for shippers of intermodal versus all water to the East Coast from Asia? You know, that's hard to say because there's so many different variables that play into that. You know, fuel cost being one of the major variables, you know, time cost, the kind of the, the shipping, the cargo cost, the, the cost per container. In the short term, one way we like to look at this is to say, what is the line of indifference? So the, a line that runs from the north to the south part of the U.S. where if your final landing point is west of that line, you would rather, and we've, we've done the math on this, we've proven out, you're better off going through the west coast, through intermodal and through rail, to, or, and then through truck to wherever you're going to end up. Even before the canal, there's been a number of factors that have come in that has made made that line go further west. Uh, the reality, though, is that really the kind of the key point of that line is Chicago. If that line ends up at Chicago, because Chicago is the second largest, if you think of Chicago as an inland port, 
It's the second largest port in the United States behind LA Long Beach, the LA Long Beach complex. More cargo other than LA Long Beach flows through Chicago, through the intermodal than anywhere else in the country. So right now it still makes more sense to go for most cases to go west ship across to Chicago and then start to break down your shipments from there into smaller breakouts and you know, then use more rail or use, use additional trucks. If that line gets west of there, then it'll be interesting. Then you'll probably find that a lot of users are going to decide that going over all water is going to be the better way to go. Right now, I would say that for a pretty significant portion of cargo with that line where it is, the status quo to some degree is probably what you want to do is you want to, if you're already staying, if you're already going into the west and using intermodal, you'll probably want to continue doing that. If you've moved east and you've you know, used the shorter, shorter haul intermodal and truck on the East Coast, you'll probably want to continue doing that as well. But we are noticing that gradually that line is shifting. And I think when the canal opens up in late June, that line will probably just skip a little further west, kind of in a, in a little bit of a blip. My expectation is that it's likely to settle right now somewhere around Detroit in that area and stay there for a little bit of time before we start getting to those broader supply chain re-rationalizations and people start to think more about where they want to have the the hub of their supply chain located. We're talking in one case just about difference of price, but what about difference of time? How much slower is all water to the East Coast versus a, a land bridge type situation? How many extra days are we talking about here? Obviously, situations change depending on, you know, there's variables that, that we're into here, but I would say it's on average about a week slower to take the all water way and then under under a new, going through the canal that is. Obviously, if you go if you go all the way around or if you're going the other direction, it's a different situation entirely. But it's approximately seven to ten days slower uh, to go from the east coast of Asia and then go down through the canal and then up to, let's say, Savannah, Georgia. So you're still adding an extra a pretty decent amount of time into your shipping. Over water right now is very inexpensive. So it becomes a bad math game. You know, it's really a question of what is the cargo that we're shipping? What's the timeliness required here? You know, Is this something that we need to have out of the container and on the shelves ASAP, or is it a more slow-moving piece of cargo that can take a little more time, and therefore the extra week or two doesn't really make much of a difference? We make some very broad generalizations about some of these things, but the reality is on the ground, every single customer has a different point of view on what they really need and what's inside that container and what the mission is of the cargo inside that container, and that'll drive the, the decision. And like if you use that line of indifference as a, a reference again, that line can vary dramatically depending on who the customer is, what it is they're shipping, and where it ultimately needs to go and when. Yeah, one of the factors that you brought up was the price of fuel. If and when, I'm sure it will eventually, or the price of oil starts to go back up again, who does that favor, all water or land bridge? That's an all water. The ships are slower but much more efficient when it comes to cost. You know, the, the, the amount of fuel, the cost of the fuel to do this is cheaper rather than when you start to put in rail and you put in truck factors in as well. One of the reasons that we're seeing that line move is because the fuel, the line will move back it's hard to say because fuel does change and, and there's different inputs, but in general, if we have higher fuel prices, we're more likely to see the West Coast continue to benefit. Which specifically are the North American ports that you think stand to benefit the most from a wider canal? So I think the southeastern United States is the likely winner in the short term. Savannah, Norfolk, and Charleston, uh, they've made significant investments, so they're ready to go for the larger ships to come in. But over the longer haul, I think once the New York, New Jersey area has all of its investments and infrastructure completed, so there's raising of the bridges and there's some uh, on-dock and off-dock congestion issues that need to be sorted out, that's probably the, the likely winner over the longest term because that is the single greatest access point to a largest consumer population in the U.S. 
So I think right now we're probably going to see, I like Savannah the most, and Savannah has already seen a lot of gain from some of the issues I mentioned earlier. Uh, Savannah has a bit of a, a long-term problem in that it's a river port and some of the depth issues that exist there. But in the very short term, Savannah and its connection to Atlanta, which is a tremendous distribution market, and then its connection to the greater southeast, which is a, a large and growing population, really gives it a, a real leg up right now. And also, you know, it, it's, it's closer. You go through the canal, you come up through the, the southeast, you end up getting to Savannah quicker than almost anywhere else. You know, Miami and South Florida has made a significant investment and is poised to improve. The problem is Miami being as far south as it is on a peninsula is a very difficult distribution area. So for large-scale distribution, it's not really a great place to land. It's hard to get out of there. So I really think Savannah, given its location relatively south, it's good infrastructure, and then it's extremely good connection to a you know, one of the top distribution markets in the world gives it a probably the greatest advantage right now. What about ports in the Gulf of Mexico? Are they simply not built up enough to handle containers, or do they have a possibility as well of, of benefiting from this? They'll do well. Houston will do well. A lot of the work that comes out of Houston is focused on the energy sector, the chemicals and gas and oil and gas and petrochemical and things like that. It does do container business, quite a bit of container business. And so it's it pretty well positioned. I think that the other two, you know, there's two other major Gulf Coast ports and that I wouldn't call them actually major might be a bit of a stretch, but uh, Mobile and New Orleans, they're not really container ports, at least not on the scale that we're talking about with some of the top ports that, that we generally discuss. I think Houston will see a bump, but I really think that the real bump's going to come from the ports on the other side in the Atlantic and particularly the ones in the south. Will the Suez Canal continue to provide an option, or will that simply be off the table once the Panama Canal is widened? Suez is a great option, and to get to the last discussion, which is the long-term point of view on what's going to happen here, and now I'm talking pretty long-term here, but I think it's worth discussing, is I think what we're looking at right now is part of the reason that we have this issue of cargo coming from Asia and landing in the United States is that for several decades now, China, eastern China, and parts in that, that part of the world has been the low-cost manufacturing destination. So a lot of manufacturing has been offshored from, from North America and sent to Asia. And for the most part, a lot of it has landed on that part of the, that part of the continent, which has pretty good access across the ocean to the, east, the West Coast. It's one of the reasons the West Coast is so significant is that it has the best access to where most of the manufacturing that's getting shipped to the U.S. is occurring. Most of the manufacturing was offshored from, from the North America, was sent to China, and was sent to the East Coast of China, and this is a low-cost manufacturing that needed to find, you know, for low-margin low type businesses where getting the lowest cost input possible is important. It was sent to China, and not necessarily just China, but kind of the eastern part of that, of that continent, the Asian continent. And so what I think is going to happen, and we're seeing it happen already, is with the Chinese economy maturing quickly, the low-cost element is, is starting to go away. China is not nearly as competitive with other Asian markets as for the low-cost manufacturing, so we're seeing factories drift away from the East Coast of China and moving, if we use China kind of as our point of reference, moving to the West. And I think over the long term, we're going to continue to see a Western drifting of that manufacturing, you know, for moving for as far as to India or maybe even to Africa. And so when that happens, now the, the point of focus changes dramatically, and we're no longer looking at a, a straight hard line between the, the factory and the West Coast ports of the United States. Now, now it's much further away. That brings Suez way into play, and it also brings the East Coast of the U.S. into play. So I think what we're looking at over the long haul is the continued movement of manufacturing to find the lowest cost inputs, the likelihood that those locations are 
not China anymore, and further west, places like India and Africa, which then makes the Suez Canal kind of the, the center, the, the point of Maine in Maine. It's a really critical place. And also, when you start drawing circles around the map and figuring out where is the quickest way to get access to the United States, no longer is the West Coast the obvious location. Now the East Coast becomes a much more clear location. And a lot of the investment and the work that's being been put into play for the Panama actually may really start to see benefits down the road when manufacturing moves and your likely your your most clear point to the U.S. is no longer necessarily the, the West Coast. It may end up being the East Coast, and having these ports ready to go, or at that point having been well ready to go, with the infrastructure will be a massive benefit. And I think the East Coast will likely start to see, you know, kind of a, a market dominance the way the West Coast did for a very long time. Are rail intermodal connections up to snuff? I mean, these days, as contrasted with a couple of decades ago when all of the uh, container lines had their own intermodal subsidiaries and were offering what they claimed at least was an integrated, smooth, seamless uh, door-to-door type service, now that they pretty much abandoned control over that and handed that to the railroads, is that really competitive-wise and service quality-wise a real stro- continuing to be a real strong option for shippers? Yeah, I think we're probably seeing we're seeing a renaissance in the intermodal space where it, it's becoming a, a, one of the key components to the supply chain. It's a really important element where intermodal rail and well-located intermodal rail is, is indispensable. Um, I think you're probably right in the sense that the lack of integration that existed before may have been a bit of a problem. I think we're starting to see local areas. You know, I'll use Chicago as an example. I live in Chicago, so I'm very familiar with the area. There's been a tremendous amount of incentive from the local government, the state, the local municipalities to make those areas the, you know, like I said, it's, it's the second largest port in the United States. And that didn't happen by accident. That, that was a concerted effort through a public-private type partnership to build the infrastructure, to bring the users in, both rail users and warehouse distribution users, and make it a critical point of port, of shipping, a shipping hub and node for the supply chains. I think we're beginning to see more public and private enterprises pop up around the country, seeing that as an example and seeing it as an opportunity for local business growth and also an opportunity to help broadly, broadly help the supply chain. And we've got a major intermodal that's opening up and being built up in central Florida. It will be a very significant southeastern distribution hub. So I think what we'll see over time is the growth of that. Some of the older intermodal locations maybe are starting to fall out of favor, but the places that have this really good, significant state or local support are seeing the benefits. You know, South Carolina has another one in Greer, just outside of Greenville. That's become a major distribution point out of Charleston, both in and out of Charleston, actually. It also supports exports quite a bit. It's been a major benefit to their economy, but it's also been a major benefit to the port and to the broader southeast. And I think that we're seeing that happen in places, and I think that most supply chain users are beginning to view intermodal as a major and significant element of the way they move cargo. I don't think that's likely to go down. I think, I think as we start to see more investment going into it, it's more likely to become a more significant rather than less significant part of the supply chain. What are some of the obstacles or challenges, though, that East Coast ports face as they attempt to build up in order to accommodate this additional volume? In many cases, it's a matter of depth. So I use Savannah as an example. Savannah has done some dredging in the river to get deeper, but to really sufficiently uh, handle the super mega ships and also even get ahead of the curve for the, the future mega ships, you got to get a depth of 52 feet or better. And so there are some cases on the East Coast where that's a problem. You just don't have that kind of depth, that kind of draft, low tide draft. And that can be an issue when it comes to getting getting ships to come into call. We have some basic infrastructure issues with, you know, use the Bayonne Bridge in New York and New Jersey. It's just not high enough. It needs to be raised so it can accommodate ships. There's a tunnel, the Howard Street Tunnel in Baltimore. It doesn't have double carrying capacity, so you can't rail off the port 
with double stacked containers. You can't get out of there. So that really limits, that becomes a bottleneck and a choke point that effectively limits how much cargo they can handle. So there's similar type issues like that. I mean, there's issues like that all over the country, but when you look at the East Coast in particular, you've got a lot of the ports have an element that either through geography or just through existing infrastructure that is creating a bit of a bottleneck and some future concerns for congestion. So you have a ship that calls with 19,000 TEUs and you have a tunnel that can only handle a, a rail line with one container at a time, that's a problem. That ship's not going to get cleared fast enough and not going to get off and accommodate the following ships. And so that shipper will probably choose to go somewhere else. So I think the issue really on the East Coast is getting that infrastructure, you know, getting it settled so that these can handle this. This kind of spike in volume can be accommodated. What about West Coast ports? How should they be responding? What can they do in the face of the potential loss of business right now? I would say the West Coast needs to do two things. The infrastructure, for the most part, is in play. There's not a lot of concern about being able to handle the kind of cargo gains that we're discussing here from a on-dock infrastructure. You know, do you have the kind of equipment and do you have the kind of capacity? I think you have to get through the idea that every five years there's likely to be a labor problem. I don't want to call it a labor problem. That, that's, that's casting with dispersion. It's, a, it's, a, it's an issue with the settlement between labor and management. Both sides need to get to the table and need to convince the marketplace that the likelihood of a slowdown three or four years from now is, is, is very low. Because really, that's an issue. You've got a lot of shippers who are working on pretty tight time frames with very small margins that have built in a certain amount of time for their cargo to get process handled and out. And when you add a week or two to that, frankly, if you even add a few days to that, that can be a bit, bit of an issue. And so when they look at their models and they're deciding, well, do I want to go to LA Long Beach? And in three years, I might have a container sitting off, offshore for six weeks. That's a problem that may, cho- may, may force them to make a different decision. So I would say the biggest issue is, is overcoming this perception that it's inevitable that this is going to happen again. And that's a matter of labor management, uh, negotiation tactics, and, and coming to a contract, maybe longer-term contracts that can you signal to the marketplace that you don't have to worry about this anymore. You know, take advantage of our superior location, take advantage of our superior infrastructure, which it does. I mean, there's, I don't think many people would argue that the location and the infrastructure are better, are the best places in the U.S., but that doesn't do you any good if your, your container is sitting offshore for six weeks. And so I would say that continuing to improve that perception, and actually not just, not just improving the perception, but actually improving the reality and making it a lower-risk opportunity is likely to be the best, the best solution. I still think in the short term, and even in the midterm, those are likely to be the places the shippers, if they have a choice, all things being equal, would rather go into the West Coast. It's quicker. It's more predictable in the sense that you know how much volume it can handle. You know, if there's a spike in volume, it's not probably going to cause too much of a problem. The unpredictability comes in with the workers and the, the consideration of whether they're going to have another catastrophic slowdown. So I'd say the other thing, too, frankly, is investment in automation. There's a lot of examples around the world where automated automated docks are way more efficient, much more predictable, and, and just work better. So it's trying to make some steps toward that would be being the leaders in that in the United States would be very helpful, I think, as well. Well, David Egan of CBRE, I want to thank you so much for taking time to explain some of the ramifications of a wider Panama Canal. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with David Egan of CBRE, talking about the ramifications of a widened Panama Canal. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. 
Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. Mm-hmm.